Jesus would not entrust himself to them. And the word entrust is the same as the word believe. They entrusted themselves to Jesus, they believed in Jesus, but he would not entrust himself to them. When they invited him to come onto the top of the open-top bus for the victory tour of Jerusalem for the Jesus movement, he declined. He wouldn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all men. He knew people. He didn't need man's testimony about man. He didn't need people to tell them about themselves. He knew what was in a man. He knew what there was in the human heart. And one of the things he knew was that in the human heart is the desire to have what heaven offers without needing to be changed myself. So he knew that human beings love to see and experience healings and exorcisms and wonderful things that make life better. And I want all that. I want all that that heaven offers. But I don't want to be changed inside. And he knew that there was a superficiality about their believing in him. And so we go straight on into chapter 3. Remember that in the original there are no chapter divisions. He knew what was in man. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. It's a slightly unusual description. Why doesn't John just say this man was a Pharisee? There was a Pharisee. He says he was a man of the Pharisees. He wants to draw attention to the fact that although this man is a Pharisee, a religiously zealous and educated man, the most significant thing about him is not that he's a Pharisee, but that he's a man. (laughs) And Jesus knows what's in a man, a human being. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. We're going to meet him later in the Gospel. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He's a senior man, and he comes to Jesus at night. Now, preachers love to criticize Nicodemus for coming to Jesus at night. They say, coward, why didn't you dare to come during the day? He may not have been a coward, There may have been perfectly good reasons to come by night. It may have been quieter. It may have been easier to get an appointment with Jesus. And yet the way John writes about night and day and light and darkness, John is saying to us, whatever Nicodemus' motives, and they may not have been bad, he is a man of the night. As uh, Anne Widdicombe famously said of Michael Howard when he was leader of the Conservative Party, there is something of the night about him. (laughs) I have no idea about Michael Howard, but it was true of Nicodemus. He was drawn to the light, and yet he himself was still a man of the night. He was in darkness. And we see that because of what happens next in verse 2. He comes to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, he's respectful. We know, and there's something just slightly patronizing about him. We who are senior, we who are men in a culture where that was a big advantage, we who are Pharisees, we who are religiously privileged, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So although Jesus had caused a disturbance in the temple 
kicking out the money changers and, and, and so on, and the people selling animals and, and that kind of thing, that didn't just make him unpopular. Some of them, like Nicodemus, were well-meaning. And they thought a bit of a reformation movement within Judaism would be a good thing. There was stuff in the temple that was corrupt, and we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, and do you know we quite liked what you did in the temple, perhaps? There was something rather healthy. It's like, if you know church history, Erasmus at the beginning of the Reformation in Europe, he rather liked the idea of cleaning up the Church of Rome. Thought it was a good idea, and maybe Nicodemus was like that. We know that you're a teacher come from God. And particularly we know it, verse 2, because no one can perform miraculous signs from, uh, that, that you're doing if God weren't with him. I'm impressed by the signs. And Nicodemus shows us. I'm very fond of Nicodemus. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. We meet him twice later in John's Gospel, the final time very movingly. But he is at this point a man of the night. And Nicodemus is a man who has all the privileges. He's a man, not a woman, in a culture where that really counted. He's a Pharisee. He's religiously zealous. He's a senior man in the ruling council. He's morally serious. He's religious. He, he has integrity. He has everything going for him. And yet Jesus is about to say to him, you haven't even started. And it's a shock, isn't it? It's a shock that human beings, however good they may be, however religiously serious they may be, however much integrity they may have, however well-meaning they may be, cannot just drift upwards into the kingdom of God. You can learn about Christianity without being a Christian. You can agree with Christianity without being a Christian. You can go to church. You can be glad to go to church without being a Christian. You can be baptized without being a Christian. You can take the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, as we're going to do this morning, without being a Christian. You can be a Bible scholar and a teacher without being a Christian. You can be a church musician or administrator or pastor without being a Christian. You can be well-meaning, well-disposed to Christianity without being a Christian. You can stand up for Christianity in the workplace you can, without being a Christian. You can feel a guilty conscience without being a Christian. You can be morally serious without being a Christian. You can see miracles without being a Christian. You can even experience miracles without being a Christian. For becoming a Christian is none of these things. And this reality check at the beginning leads into some of the high drama of Christianity. So what is becoming a Christian? The story continues with a wonderful and deep surprise. As Nicodemus, the senior man, makes, as it were, to put his avuncular arm on the shoulder of this young religious teacher who's causing such a stir in Jerusalem, and he said to him, we know, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. We'd like to give you a free place in Bible school. And we expect the young man to say, to blush slightly and to say, oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you should say those good things about me. Instead of which, the young man says this, verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born 
again. And the word translated again also means from above. Born from above, born from God. It's as though he says to the uh, an archbishop or a pope or a moderator or some senior churchman, you need to go off to a little evangelical tin tabernacle somewhere and get converted. I mean, it is outrageous what, 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 what this young religious teacher says to this senior, moral, serious, earnest man. You haven't even seen the kingdom of God. What I've come to bring, says Jesus, is not a reformation movement within Judaism, not to clean up Judaism and to make it a little bit better so it'll, it'll become a, an acceptable thing. I've come to bring men and women a life that comes from above, a life that gives them second birth. And Nicodemus' response in verse 4 proves the truth of what Jesus says. How can a man be born when he's old? And Nicodemus has so often in John's gospel, Jesus says things and people just don't get it. And he says it's a, it's a sort of obstetric absurdity, besides being a bit tough on mothers. You know, if they had to sort of give birth to their same baby twice, you know, you just think it's a bit rough, isn't it, really, on a mother? It's, it's rough enough once. Um, you know, and Nicodemus says, I just can't get it. And of course, there may be a wistfulness about Nicodemus. He may not just be laughing at Jesus. He may also be saying, how can a man be born again? How He, he may be wistful. He may be very conscious of all the entailment of his history and his parents and his upbringing and his, in our terms, his, his, his DNA and everything that makes him who he is and the messed upness that leads into who he is. And he may be thinking, oh, I wish it were possible to have a deep, a new start, a new start right deep inside. But I can't see how it could ever be possible. He wouldn't be the first or the last human being to wish for that, would he? He wouldn't be the first or the last human being to look at their history and background and say, I wish it had been different. I wish I weren't the person I am, but I am the person I am because of everything that's happened to me in my past. I wish it were possible to be born Again, and Jesus comes back to it, verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter, they can't see, they can't enter, they can't begin with the kingdom of God, unless they're born, and he puts it slightly differently, of water and the Spirit. And that's why Matt read those little verses from Ezekiel chapter 36 earlier. Water and the Spirit is not, I think, Jesus talking about two things. He's talking about one thing in two ways. Water as, as a sprinkling in the language of Ezekiel, a cleansing, and, and, uh, so that the Spirit can come. A washing and a cleansing, two, two, two facets of the same thing, so that the Spirit or the breath of God can come deep into a human heart. Verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh. One of my colleagues at uh, Cornhill, his wife gave birth just five or six hours ago, just earlier this morning. To a baby boy. Now, I don't know whether Jonathan and Gemma knew whether the baby was going to be a boy or a girl. They might have known that. But one thing I'm quite confident about, um, they will have been very confident that the baby would, have, would be a human baby. They didn't need to be brilliant to know that, that flesh gives birth to flesh. 
that human parents can only give birth to a human baby and a flawed human baby with all the messed upness and the sin and the disorder that is, is there in us. Flesh gives birth to flesh. And nothing human beings can do, not just the physical processes of procreation, but nothing human beings can do can cause flesh, messed up humanness, to drift upwards, to sort of evolve into spirit, the life of God. Evangelists can't do that in their preaching. Musicians can't do that in their singing. Churches can't do that in their social life. Nothing human beings can do can generate that life in a human being. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Only the spirit gives birth to spirit. And it's a mysterious thing. Don't be surprised, he says, says Jesus in verse 7. Verse 8, wind, breath, spirit. It's the same word, wind, breath, spirit. Blows where it pleases. You hear the sound. You, you can see perhaps some of the effects, but you can't understand it. It's beyond you. There's something mysterious. There's something from above that needs to happen before a human being can see and enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is a wonderful thing. If you're a Christian parent, a number of us here are Christian parents, you long for your son or daughter to be a Christian. You want them to follow the Lord Jesus, to have their sins forgiven. And one of the deepest frustrations for a Christian parent is you cannot do that for them. You can do your best to set them some sort of goodish example. You can do your best to tell them about the gospel of the Lord Jesus and read them the Bible, but you can't do it for them. And it's very humbling. Carolyn and I had this in our own experience with um, one of our children who wasn't following the Lord through childhood and uh, teenage years and school. And then uh, she went to the other side of the world uh, between school and university, and she, she was with some Christians And God, by his spirit, gave her new birth. And she was changed inside. And since that day, she's been a different girl. That's a wonderful thing, but only God can do it. You can't do it for somebody else. You can't do it for yourself. Only God can do it. It's a sovereign, wonderful work. And yet Jesus says to Nicodemus... It can't happen to you yet. And I think this is the significance of the last section, which I've been grappling with from verses 9 to 15, how becoming a Christian is possible. So Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus chides him, verse 10, you're Israel's teacher, which is a way of saying you should have known from the Old Testament You should have known from places like Ezekiel, that little bit we had read earlier. You should have known that the time would come when God would put his spirit into the hearts of men and women to change them from the inside, to give them birth from above. You should have known that. You're Israel's teacher. But we speak of what we know, verse 11. Nicodemus says, we know you're a teacher who's come from God in his patronizing way. Jesus says, no, no, there are things we know that you don't know. We speak of what we know, verse 11. We testify to what we've seen. But you don't accept our testimony. 
I've spoken to you of earthly things, perhaps what needs to happen to a human being on earth you don't believe. How are you going to believe if I speak of heavenly things, if I speak of greater things? No one's gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, and he's speaking about himself. And then he says something very, very deep. And what Jesus is going to say next is this. He's going to say, okay, Christianity isn't just a reformation movement trying to tidy up religion as if you could tidy up Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or Judaism and just tidy it all up, reform it, make it a bit more acceptable, make it a bit better, and then it'll be okay. No, he says, I'm talking about something radical. I'm talking about the life of God coming into the heart of a human being to give them new birth, to make them a new person inside. Really deep, radical, And suppose we then say, well, that sounds nice, let's have it. And what Jesus is about to say is, no, you can't have that until something extraordinary has happened. So verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, he refers to that story that uh, Matt read for us earlier, of Israel in the wilderness, Moses lifting up the snake. That strange story where the people of Israel were we're just being thoroughly churlish and unbelieving and horrible, just like us, by nature. And, and, and God sent this terrible judgment of these poisonous snakes. And when they, 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 they begin to, to, to plead and Moses prays on their behalf, and God says to Moses, I want you to make a bronze model of the snake and put it up on a pole. And you think, why, the, why do you put a model of the snake on a pole? Why don't you put a picture of the medicine on a pole? or the antidote or something. But no, it has to be the thing that's killing them that goes up on the pole. And they have to look at this this bronze uh, uh, model of the thing that's killing them. And then when they look on it and believe in the promise of God, then they'll be be healed. And Jesus says that was a a vivid picture of what's going to happen. He says, in the same way the Son of Man, he himself, the human one, is going to be lifted up. And when you read those words, lifted up in John's Gospel, they they crop up again in chapter 8 and again in chapter 12, lifted up. John explains in chapter 12 that the phrase lifted up is a way of speaking of crucifixion. Lifted up on a pole, lifted up on a Roman cross. The Son of Man's got to be lifted up. So just as the thing that was killing them The snake was put there on the pole in the wilderness. So Jesus is going to be made into sin. And he himself is going to become sin. All the wrongdoing and the messed upness and the evil and the malice and the hatred and the lust and the selfishness and everything of the sinners he's dying for, he's going to be made that. And he's going to be, be lifted up like that. And the reason is so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, that is the life of the age to come. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, you need this new life, this new birth. You need the Spirit of God to be put in your heart. But you cannot have that until your sin has been paid for.
And that's why it's so appropriate for us to be having the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion service, on this Pentecost Sunday. That's why on this Pentecost Sunday, while we do speak about the Holy Spirit and how wonderful he is and what he does, we remember that it's only because of what we remember in the Lord's Supper. It's only because the Son of Man was lifted up. It's only because sin was paid for that it is possible for the Holy Spirit of God to be poured into the hearts of men and women. So it's very appropriate that we, that we do that. What does it mean to become a Christian? In some ways, two answers have been given. And I want us just to think about them before we finish. One answer is, you can't do it. God's got to do it for you. God's got to give you birth from above. You can't birth yourself. You can't conceive spiritual life in yourself. You can't do it for yourself. God has to do it. It's a sovereign work of God. He does it when he does it. That's one answer. The other answer in verse 15 is that those who believe in the lifted up Son of Man, in other words, those who look, as it were, at Jesus dying for sinners and believe will have the life of the age to come. Now, that's our story, isn't it? When I became a Christian when I was 17, I understood for the first time that Jesus had died for sinners. And as it were, I looked at him on the cross, in a, in, in a sense. And I believed. And I was given the life of the age to come. I exercised faith. I trusted wasn't just that I thought it was true, but I entrusted myself to him. And then I came to realize that the only reason I ever did that, and the only reason I've gone on trusting him, is because God has done something in my heart and given me new birth and the life of the age to come. Now, I I want to, uh, to, to leave us with this before I finish I want us to be moved to pray, to search our own hearts and to ask ourselves, have I been born from above? It may be there's someone here and you're glad to be in church and you think Christianity is true and you're on the side of Christians. Search your heart. Have you been born from above? Has God washed away your sin and placed his spirit in your heart so that there is that new life? And if you're not sure, cry to him. Pray and go on praying until you're confident that that is true of you. And let's pray for others. Pray for those we're praying for, perhaps in our workplace or neighborhood. Pray by all means that they come to church or that we can have conversations with them about the gospel. Maybe read the Bible with them. Let's pray those things. But above all, let's pray that God will do that sovereign work of giving them birth from above. It's a wonderful thing when he does that. And until and unless he does that, nobody is ever changed. Let's not be superficial about our Christianity. Let's not ever drift into thinking that Christianity is goodish, well-meaning-ish people, enjoying being with goodish, well-meaning-ish people, being sort of thinking that it's true-ish, 
and kind of hoping-ish that we'll graduate-ish into the kingdom of God. Let's not have that sort of superficial view of Christianity. Let's remember Christianity is about God placing his spirit in the heart of a human being who's been forgiven because the Son of Man has been lifted up on the cross and giving to them life from above because that is a wonderful thing. Let's be quiet for a moment and I'll pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus lifted up for sinners. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to give new birth. And we pray that that might be true of us. And we pray that more and more might come to know that new birth in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.